If you were a serial killer, what kind would you be? Come on, we've all thought about it. Personally, I think I'd be a strangler. I don't know why. The heart wants what it wants, I suppose. Whatever your answer, this story should have something for you. Episode 3. Fancy meeting you here. Raymond East took a bite of his sandwich and surveyed the car park for his next victim. It was a tuna sandwich, nominally, though the grey mush between the two sodden, cardboard-like slices of bread might as well have been wallpaper paste for all the flavour it had. Still, what could you expect from a service station? He ought to have brought a packed lunch from home. It was getting on for six, nearly dark, and Lee Delamere services were all but empty. Raymond had been parked up for hours. Twice he'd toured the facilities. He'd bought coffee, the sandwiches, and a pair of thick woolen socks, as his favourites at home were full of holes and beyond darning. He had sat and drank his coffee on a small patch of grass beside the car park, soaking in the last of the afternoon sun and watching the cars roll in and out, waiting for his opportunity. He was looking for hitchhikers, for whom these service stations were convenient points to be dropped off and picked up for the next leg of their journey. They were recognisable by their large rucksacks and their idiosyncratic modes of dress. If they were British, they often belonged to one of the dominant youth subcultures of the day. Punks was one of the terms Raymond had heard thrown about, or crusties. If there was a difference between the two, he could not identify it. Sometimes there would be holidayers from Europe or America, these travellers were the ones with the biggest rucksacks, the kinds which can carry a tent and many provisions, and were usually dressed for the wilderness. Their haircuts weren't as wild. A young woman would be ideal. The last two had been young women, and while Raymond was not so stubborn that he couldn't make do with anybody, he liked the idea of a matching trio. However, he had probably missed his chance now that the sun had set. Girls were liable to be more cautious in the dark, and with so few people around now, he'd be more conspicuous. There had been one girl that afternoon. She was about twenty from the look of her, and sort of pretty, though with a slightly upturned nose that Raymond thought unbecoming. She had stepped out of the entrance to the services, a rucksack over her shoulder, and was looking around as if trying to spot somebody when Raymond made his approach. Excuse me, miss, he'd said. You wouldn't know the time, would you? I think my watch has stopped. Yes, it's... As she was checking her watch, a horn honked nearby. They both looked up to see, presumably, the girl's family waving her over. It's just gone four, she said, already jogging over to the car. He'd nodded politely and returned to his spot, waiting for another likely hitchhiker to emerge. After ten minutes, none had, but a light spritz of rain had started and Raymond had returned to his car. It wasn't worth it to be impatient, he reminded himself now, his mouth full of tasteless sandwich. He'd nearly had a nasty mishap, hadn't he, the last time he'd been impatient. That was why he'd bought the new car. On Raymond's previous attempt, the third young woman she was to be, he'd successfully lured the girl into the car and had pulled off of the motorway, but was not yet close enough to the secluded spot he'd picked out before he became excited and loosened his tongue. Very dangerous, you know, hitchhiking. I'm a big girl, she said. I can look after myself. She was rather tall, Raymond noticed, probably six feet. 
Still, did your mother never warn you about such things? I grew up in care, she replied in a flat voice. Ah! If he had been less caught up in his anticipation, he might have detected the frostiness of her tone and not pushed her any further. But he went on. Some very nasty men on these roads is all I'm saying. Despicable types. He heard a small metallic click from her seat and turned to see her holding what looked to be a very sharp flick knife. I'm well aware, she said. That's why I always carry this. Raymond slammed on the brakes and ordered her from the car. A narrow escape he'd had there. It had revealed a potentially fatal flaw in his methodology. Once he'd brought the victim to the secondary location, he was in total control, able to threaten them into doing whatever he pleased with a snip of his gardening shears. But while driving, he was distracted, vulnerable. Accommodations needed to be made. Julia, Raymond's wife, had been pleasantly surprised when he'd driven the new Rover, excellent condition, only one previous owner, onto the driveway. When he told her it was his private car for business purposes and she was not to touch it, she'd become grumpy, despite his offering that she could now drive the old Skoda as much as she liked. It couldn't be helped. He needed exclusive use of the new car to keep secret his modifications. It also had central locking and power windows, which he liked. Ten minutes after he'd finished his sandwich, Raymond decided tonight was not the night and left the services. Hopefully he'd have better luck tomorrow. An aborted mission always left him grinding his teeth. He knew it was the smart thing to do, and impatience would only get him caught, but postponed gratification had always been Raymond's bête noire. Once, in the eye-twitching aftermath of another failed search, he had pulled over into a small village and strangled a cat to satiate his urges. It only helped a little. Still, he told himself, it would feel all the better when he finally got to kill again. The release would only be more powerful. He pondered over this as he drove west on the M4, eventually pulling off onto Bath Road. It was a quiet night with little traffic. He expected he'd be back in Chipping Sodbury in ten minutes and in his armchair with a cup of tea in twenty. He was not long off the motorway when he saw the hitchhiker. It was a man, older than Raymond, with a greying beard. He had on an oversized black hooded raincoat, though it was no longer raining, and hiking boots. He stuck out a thumb as Raymond approached. Well, Raymond thought, why not? He had been in the mood for another girl, yes, but he wasn't fussy. It'd be better than the cat, surely, and much better than nothing at all. He flicked on his indicator, slowed down, and pulled onto the shoulder. The hitchhiker looked into the window, and Raymond nodded him in. He opened the door. Where are you headed? Raymond asked. Into Sudbury, ideally, said the man. Raymond knew from his accent he wasn't local. That's where I'm bound to, in you get. Raymond took a brief look at the man before he pulled away from the shoulder. His boots and the bottom of his coat were spattered with mud. He'd have to give the rover a thorough scrubbing tomorrow. The man was of average build, though a little wiry. There was a faintly medical smell about him. Plaster of Paris, perhaps, or gauze. It didn't match his dishevelled rusticity. What brings you to these parts, then? asked Raymond. I've been everywhere, me, said the man through a sly smile. Rambler, eh? That's right. I was in Bath last night. Walked this far. Could have walked further, but the light's gone. Oh, you would have caught a lift too. Hell of a walk, that. I'm used to it. Pleasantries like these, Raymond felt, were an important part of the process. 
It was key to make the passenger think they had been brought aboard for their companionship, to ease the solitude of a long drive and nothing more. Raymond wondered how killing a man would be. Probably more force was required. This fellow was older, but clearly in fine fettle. He would be fitter than Raymond due to his walking regime, so would need to be subdued as early as possible. If he started to run, Raymond could surely not catch him. Ah, but he'd been at it all day. He was probably worn out and stiff. Would he beg, Raymond wondered, as the girls had done, and plead for mercy? Perhaps he'd welcome his fate, a natural end for a wandering reprobate such as he. It was all new, and Raymond buzzed with glee as he approached the five-way junction. Usually he would turn left, bringing him through old Sodbury and eventually home. Tonight, however, he thought he'd carry on straight through into the fields and find some quiet corner out there to do the deed. No other cars were at the junction, but the automated light was currently red at his end. He hoped, as he stopped for it, that his passenger hadn't noticed the signs clearly pointing to Sodbury in the other direction. As nonchalantly as he could, he turned to check. The hitchhiker was extending his left arm towards Raymond. For the first time, Raymond saw that the arm ended in a sharpened metal hook. Raymond was not easily startled. Readily, he reached up to the passenger side sun visor and flipped it down. A spring-loaded mechanism was triggered, and a fine cloud of pepper spray shot out into the hitchhiker's eyes. The man let out a wail that pierced Raymond's eardrum and rang in his head like the peal of a bell. As the man scratched at his eyes with his one good hand, Raymond pressed a button next to the wheel. Its original function had been to slowly open the powered door of the glove compartment. Under Raymond's modification, however, it sprang open like a trap door and ejected a flat, extendable blade. It came out just far enough to poke the man in the stomach without cutting him. Or you can stick that blade right into you with the push of a button, Raymond said calmly under the hitchhiker's cries. I have other tricks too, so don't even think about trying anything. This was a bluff. Rewiring the glove compartment took longer than Raymond had anticipated, and he hadn't yet had a chance to convert the seat warming function into a painful electric shock pad. The man, after a series of sharp, quick breaths, spat out a few anguished sentences. You kill people, do you? I... Oh, Christ! I do too. Perhaps... Shit. Perhaps we can pull over and talk about it. The light ahead had turned green some time ago. By now, Raymond's own eyes were starting to sting from the pepper spray still in the air. He rolled the window down and drove on through towards the fields. The hitchhiker's name, as it turned out, was Arnold Weston, and he had been killing people on the road for more than 30 years. In that time, various norms de guerre had been ascribed to him. The Downs Ripper, the Slasher of Snowdonia, Jack of the Broads, he had acquired these titles not consecutively, but piecemeal, over years spent traipsing the British Isles, leaving a body here, a body there. He was of no fixed address, and what little money he needed to sustain himself was obtained through petty thievery. In temperate periods, he slept under the stars, or in unofficial shelters used by the homeless communities of the larger cities he would pass through. When winter came, he nested in a number of abandoned farm buildings he had scouted out across the country. His details had not been marked on any official form since the late 50s. In the eyes of the government, he was effectively non-existent. His passion for killing, so he told Raymond, was ignited early. He lost his hand in infancy. 
His father had worked in a bakery and carelessly left the toddler unattended next to an industrial dough mixer while flirting with the bakery owner's daughter. Consequently, he was the victim of vicious bullying as soon as he was old enough for school. Captain Hook! Captain Hook! His schoolmates would jeer at him in the playground. He put up with it for a month or two. Then he used his hook to poke out one of his tormentor's eyes. The rest of his youth was spent in various institutions and asyla. When, at 18, he was declared a man and sent on his merry way, he was most ill-equipped for the world he found himself in. Other people his age were dancing to rock and roll music and driving off to country lanes to kiss in the moonlight. He was working in a garage, though he couldn't even drive, and kept accidentally piercing tyres with his hook. His first murder was one of these love-struck couples, two for the price of one. It became his nightly hobby, the way he would unwind at the end of a long day at the garage. When his father confronted him about the spate of stabbings in the local news, and just how sharp his hook was looking these days, Arnold killed him too. The next day, he set off walking, and his new life as a wandering maniac began. As he and Raymond sat dabbing their eyes with disposable tissues while the corn stalks in the fields either side of the road undulated in the night breeze, Arnold realised, without much reaction, that this was the first time he'd ever talked freely about his killings. In fact, it was the most he'd talked to anyone since he'd taken up the life, excepting the polite small talk he used to lull victims into letting their guard down, or the guttural, animalistic rants he would slip into once he'd begun dismembering them. But enough about me he told Raymond after the man had spent a quarter of an hour questioning him. How many have you killed? Raymond sucked in a little air through his teeth as though tallying up a great sum. Well, only two so far. He thought he detected a slight raising of one of Arnold's eyebrows, though the hitchhiker didn't look at him. But you and I have very different approaches, it sounds like. Different styles. Oh, to be sure. And not everybody's as lucky as I, finding my calling so young. A film of stinging heat still coated Raymond's eyes. How long did it take this stuff to wear off, anyhow? I always knew I wanted to do it, of course, said Raymond. Arnold didn't say a word or look at him, just carried on dabbing his eyes. Things just sort of went in a different direction, you know how it is. Not really, Arnold said. I mean, it's not as if anybody's encouraging you to go into this sort of thing, is it? I'd go so far as to say it's frowned upon. Maybe not verbally, no, but there's more than one form of encouragement. I'd say I was pushed towards murder from day one. This stumped Raymond. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> I suppose if everybody did things exactly the same, it'd be a very dull world indeed. Perhaps, said Arnold. There was something about his tone Raymond didn't like. It reminded Raymond of the way people talked to his sister-in-law's five-year-old. Was this man patronising him? As I say, Raymond started, our styles differ. We're almost working in different mediums, aren't we? You're like a wandering minstrel and I'm more of a poet in residence. If you like. These non-committal responses were starting to get on Raymond's nerves. Listen, what are you getting at? He said sharply. These two murders of yours. Tell me about them. Tell me your methods. Ah, Raymond thought. Now's the chance to impress him. First, he detailed his scouting process. The maps, the reconnaissance trips, the careful consideration of each service station and the routes he would use to reach the scene of crime. 
Then there was his criteria for selecting the victim, though from this Raymond left out his plan for the trilogy of young women, having so easily abandoned it when he had seen an opportunity in The Hitchhiker. Finally, there were the murders themselves. Now, using nothing more than a selection of tools available from any gardening store, he would bind, torture and dispatch them, cleanly and precisely, then bury them, leaving as little indication as possible that any ground had been disturbed. Having finished the job, he concluded, I return to my civilian life, and no one's the wiser about it. Arnold, having been listening carefully, gave a sage nod. Sounds as if you've put a lot of thought into it. Quite right, quite right you are. Got it all down to a science, one might even say. There it was again, that hint of derision. I suppose it'd be better if I did it your way, then. Off the top of my head, no planning, no family to hide from, and nothing to lose where I caught. Not better, only different. Raymond sputtered. Then why do I get the feeling you're thoroughly unimpressed? I don't know, said Arnold coolly. You must admit, I'm the winning numbers. I wasn't aware it was a bloody competition. Arnold stood and gave each of his legs a little shake, one after the other, as though limbering up for a race. Do you really get the chance to enjoy it, though? All that caution? Are you able to truly lose yourself in the moment? Raymond said nothing. Arnold rolled up the sleeve of his hooked arm, checking a watch that wasn't there. It's been a pleasure chatting with a colleague. I'd better be moving on. The older man started off down the road. Raymond felt he could not stand to leave things on such a flat note. Do one with me, he called after Arnold. Let's do one together. Arnold stopped, turned back. Hmm? There's a few lonely farmhouses around here. Let's find one and collaborate. I want to see how you work. Arnold considered this, scratching his bearded chin with the tip of his hook as he did so. He did not especially like this fussy, graceless man to whom his approval seemed so important. But he had not killed in more than a week, and he didn't yet feel ready to retire for the night. Lead the way he told Raymond. In his dim, dank cellar, Ifan worked. It was his favourite room in the house, and he had it set up just as he liked it. Cariad hung from two hooks on the wall, watching him as he went about his business. He kept all his finest pieces down here where the daylight could not bleach them. The skull he had transformed into an ornamental birdhouse. The mirror framed with a border of hundreds of teeth. He loved to clean it with aquafresh. Carpentry was a fan's speciality, but he was teaching himself to sew, that he might one day soon be able to upholster his own pieces with the skins he had collected and tanned. It wasn't that he didn't like the rest of the house. At least once a day he would visit with the other residents in their rooms, always in the same positions he'd left them. He liked the kitchen, where he kept the fridge stocked with meat. Ifan ate very well. But when it came down to it, the cellar was his favourite place to be. Here he worked. Here he slept and dreamt. He liked to imagine a life where he never needed to leave. It was a pure fantasy, of course. Where would he get his materials, his food? Maybe one day he'd take a wife who would make him a kept man and he'd never need to leave the cellar again. For now, though, he had Cariad and she was enough. Wasn't she by his side on every trip out of the house? Didn't she keep him safe and fed? 
Ivan was woken from his reverie by an unfamiliar noise above his head. Somebody was walking around in the house. Immediately he broke out in a cold sweat, felt a lurching in his stomach. This wasn't normal, was it? Had this happened before? He racked his brains for a memory to drape over the situation and tell him what to do, but found nothing. He would have to go up there and sort it out. Cariad glinted at him from her spot on the wall. Everything will be fine, she seemed to say. I'll be with you all the way. Ifan leapt to his feet and grabbed Cariad from her hooks. The wood felt right in his hands. Raymond and Arnold had wandered the cornfields for the better part of an hour until they came across a farmhouse. It was well kept and clearly lived in, but the land surrounding it had been left to grow wild. What crops there were had sprouted at random, the remnants of harvests in years past. The sound of crickets thickened in these fields, completely obscuring the faint thrum of distant traffic. None of these details occurred to Raymond and Arnold, however. All they were looking for was a sign of human habitation, and they found one in the calm puffing of the farmhouse's chimney. Raymond, not wanting to be too heavily laden, came armed only with a pair of secateurs, which had served him well on his two previous successes. Arnold, of course, had his hook. There were no lights on in the house. When they tried the door, it opened easily and they let themselves in. The first sensation to greet them was the smell of unsettled dust, as of a place often occupied but seldom cleaned. They did not expect, at this late hour and with no lights on, to find anybody on the ground floor, so gave it only a cursory look before coming to the staircase. See, there's the farmer and his wife in one room and nippers in the other whispered Raymond. Are we to split up and meet in the middle? Or should we work together one after the other? Shh, was Arnold's only reply. Taking the lead, the hook-handed man placed an experimental foot on the bottom step. It creaked in the centre, and he moved his foot until it found sturdier ground at the edge of the step. Having tested it a few times and finding it silent, he mounted the staircase. Raymond watched him climb a few steps, then followed. Arriving at the top, they observed that the bedroom doors were all ajar. The dusty smell was joined up here by a more pungent overtone, an exotic but not unfamiliar spice. Arnold again paused before climbing the final step and seemed to take assessment. Was he weighing a list of possibilities in his head, Raymond wondered, or trying to listen to his gut? Whichever it was, it eventually pointed him towards the room at the far end of the landing. The two men crept towards it, taking great care to remain silent. The door was open wide enough to walk straight through. Pale moonlight came in through the curtainless window and washed over a scene of preserved violence. The room's inhabitants, the farmer and his wife, lay splayed across the bed in an unmistakable state of decay. The duvet beneath them, originally white, had been saturated in blood, now long dried and holding the fabric stiff in place. Great arcs of blood, too, were splattered across every wall, some at quite a distance from the bed. There were insects, fat bloatflies, sedately wandering the length of the corpses and the surrounding viscera. The farmer and his wife had died with their eyes open. Now the sockets were empty and encrusted at the edges with dry white matter. Met with this unexpected scene, Raymond and Arnold immediately dropped their prowler's stances and stood naturally. Been here before, have you? said Raymond at a conversational volume. Not me, replied Arnold in kind. 
You're the local. I'm as surprised as you. Bit of a letdown, I must say. Now, now, Arnold had ventured on into the room and was curiously prodding the corpses. I don't know about you, but by the time they reach this point, I'm long gone. I'd like to get a proper look, wouldn't you? Raymond nodded and walked past Arnold to the far side of the bed. He took in a deep breath through his nostrils. That smell, ain't it strong? Quite right. One would think it'd wear off the more they desiccate, and yet there it is. Both of them took another huff of it, letting the rare bouquet fill their heads. Have you ever tasted it? asked Raymond. Once or twice. It's not without its charms. And you? No. I've wanted to. Arnold took the withered hand of the woman's body in his good hand and sharply bent back the index finger. It yielded easily, but the tough skin joining the finger to the hand refused to tear. He brought his hook to it and was soon able to pry it free. Raymond took it and gave it a sniff. Careful of the bone, said Arnold, already looking back at the bodies. It had a texture not unlike salt pork, though even drier. It was darker than much of the body's other flesh. Raymond wondered whether blood had pooled in it. He thought he'd heard of such things happening to the extremities. Merci beaucoup, he said, and popped the finger in his mouth. The flavour was fainter than he had expected, the main effect being that of savouriness. He ran his tongue over it and tried to work up some saliva to soften it. God, try for chewy, Raymond said. He turned just in time to see the axe swing down and split Arnold's head in two. The break was as clean as if the head were a watermelon. The hot tang of fresh blood mingled in the air with its stale counterpart. As gouts of the stuff squirted freely from his divided head, Arnold's knees buckled and he collapsed onto the bed, a third corpse. On the opposite side of the bed from Raymond stood Arnold's killer. The figure, though as broad as an ox and doubtless heavy to match, had managed to sneak in undetected by either man, so engrossed had they been in the details of the grisly sight before them. The axe in the killer's hands, it was a splitting maul, Raymond knew, with a short, thick blade, glittered in the moonlight, Arnold's wet blood sliding cleanly off the treated metal. This was not any old farm axe, but the well-honed tool of a craftsman. Ifan gently stood Cariad up against the bedside table, careful not to scuff her blade against its wood. There was no rush now. He stood between the second man and the door. He had him trapped. Raymond was not sure that he had ever felt fear throughout his life. He had heard it described, its symptoms and characteristics, and could not recall ever feeling them. But what he did have, in situations of imminent threat, was an adrenal surge to push him into action. It kicked in now. He spat out the finger. Raymond ran for the window behind him. It was bolted shut and firmly stuck that way. He would have to break the glass. From his pocket, he withdrew his secateurs and pounded the metal blades against the window. The glass broke, but not in the right way. Small holes appeared where the tip of the blades hit, a web of cracks splintering out from each one, but no opening was big enough to fit even a pencil through. Keep going, he thought. Don't look back. Had he looked back, he would have seen a fan carrying Arnold's lifeless body like a guy on bonfire night made only from sack and straw. 
It was no good, Raymond knew, as the hulking figure drew closer. The glass would not break. It was the door or nothing. He turned and ran blindly forward. Something was in Raymond's eye. That was all he knew before whatever it was pressed in deeper, into his brain, and darkness swallowed him. Ifan dropped the body. It crumpled to the floor, bringing with it that of the second man, still caught on the first man's hook. He sat back on the edge of the bed and looked at his two fresh kills. After a minute, when he had caught his breath, he returned to Cariad and picked her up. What a thing to happen, she said, her voice sweet and twinkling like wind chimes, as it always was. The night was just beginning, Ifan knew. When a bundle of fresh materials fell in your lap like this, the best thing was to get right to work while the inspiration came freely. Perhaps he'd turn them into an armchair, 